0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, guys. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi. So let's do a quarantine check. How's everybody doing?
1: Well, you know, all the days kind of feel the same now. And they've started fencing up the bluffs near us in Santa huh. Monica. You can still kind of walk down towards the beach, which is nice, but it just feels like the walls are getting are closing in all around me here by the beach. Though I am finding lots of time for reading. So all of these kind of books that have been on my shelf that I've been meaning to get to, I've finally been able to kind of jump on that much intended and well intended reading list. Like what, what are you reading? I guess this isn't like terribly interesting to most people, but I've been kind of going back through Theodore Adorno's writing on aesthetics and there's an epistolary collection between Adorno, LaClau, Benjamin and, and others on aesthetics and politics. So I've been kind of reading that, as well as some kind of gay and gay-ish YA novels, which, you know, of course, totally goes together. <laughs> um, Nice but manner. so that's kind of what I've been doing. And I guess somewhere in there, thinking about how Adorno might respond to the aesthetics of the Gay YA novel.
2: Oh, well, one of the other books we've been reading this week is the book that our guest today wrote, which is called To Live and Defy in LA How Gangster Rap Changed America. And that's written by Felicia Anjeja Vitor. What do you guys, what's your relationship to gangster rap in LA? Well, what about I, you came
1: uh, since you were here?
0: Yes, I was here. I was. I'm not a spring chicken by any means, but I was young when gangster rap was going on. So I didn't find it at the time. And I remember like purchasing straight out of Compton years later. And I wasn't really able to get into it that much because I think the kind of hip hop I liked was much more esoteric and funny and like jazzy and, you know, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Freestyle Fellowship style. But I have found that the kind of anger and ferocity that NWA encompasses, like, wears really well. Mm. And mm. anytime time now where I'm feeling really pissed off about Injustice, like, they're a good band to go back to. Nice. Uh, along with Boogie Down Productions and Public Enemy. Yeah, there's still plenty that they were rapping about that is happening now. So they, ever timely, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think my experience with gangster Rap was very much that kind of, like, white suburban kid like growing up in middle America but it was definitely in like college and then grad school that I th- I think I heard the music differently like both through an informed sense of the history that it was documenting in real time and also just what you said Kate like the kind of to me then much clearer political directions of the music and the underpinnings of the music and how that continues to kind of stick with us today
0: yeah Medea, did, do you have any relationship to gangster rap? I
2: also came to it late because I grew up in Queens. And so my rap life really started with New York rappers. And I also kind of grew up in the heyday of the, of the West Coast, East Coast rivalry. And so for a long time, very stupidly, I was like, well, West Coast sucks. <laughs> um, but you know, this is also like as a child <laughs> who <laughs> doesn't know like anything. Five years old, right? <laughs> West Coast sucks to my bottle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so I didn't know a lot, but I had gathered that much and probably only came to West Coast rap and I don't know, like in college. But this book was really fun to read because I had, you know, I really didn't know the history of West Coast rap or of the rise of gangster rap other than sort of what I had gleaned from pop culture in general. And I thought Felicia really gives a comprehensive, interesting view of how this genre came to change our culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Let's listen to the interview.
2: Let's do it. We have Felicia Anjasha Vietor with us on the line today. Felicia is an assistant professor of history at the San Francisco State University, and her new book, it's called To Live and Define LA, How Gangsta Rap Changed America. She used to be a DJ in the Bay Area, but today we'll have her on to talk about the book and the development of Gangsta Rap in LA. Thank you so much, Felicia, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So Felicia, this book does a really amazing and thorough job of kind of setting the scene from which Gangsta Rap evolved in Los Angeles. And it puts a real particular emphasis on police brutality and the kind of war efforts of the police chief at the time, Daryl Gates. I wondered if you could just talk about the kind of extremes and specificities of police brutality in 1980s Los Angeles and beyond that, the kind of particulars of African-American life in LA. You talk about kind of LA being a promised land and a lot of that being debunked at the same time that it did have unique opportunities for, you know, Black business people and Black cultural life. But then lots of these communities were also just facing this extreme police brutality. So maybe you could talk about those things kind of in the same breath for us, just to set the scene.
3: Yeah. You know, what I found in the research was that The Black experience of L.A. through the generations, I mean, as far back as some of the first waves of migration into L.A., Black migration into L.A., so early 20th century, is that the experience for many affirms this idea that L.A. is sort of a promised land. And I talk about that in the intro to the book, a promised land in comparison to, of course, the Jim Crow South and to the urban North and all of its problems. But those experiences of L.A. as this special place of opportunity through the generations, the experience of L.A. as a sort of like an American Eden, that all ends up underscoring the fact that L.A. in fact, does incubate extreme forms of inequality, extreme forms of racial bigotry and racial violence, especially in the form of police abuse. And that's not new in the 1980s, even though, you know, I talk specifically about Daryl Gates and his reign of the LAPD and some of the things that he does that are pretty radical in terms of militarizing the police force and introducing things like decommissioned U.S. Army tanks, essentially, the battering ram, which was really radical at the time in the 1980s at the beginning of the national war on drugs and L.A.'s specific crisis with gang violence and drug addiction and drug trafficking. But yeah, you know, the Black experience in L.A. is a really interesting and important backdrop for this story because the mythologies about Los Angeles, you know, this idea that L.A. is the promised land for everyone and especially for black migrants, you know, good jobs, these single story houses with yards all in a row and opportunity and cheap land and all of these things that doesn't erase the bigotry and the inequality and the violence. And in fact, it actually amplifies these injustices. It amplifies the indignities of racism in L.A. And specifically, you know, the indignities of police violence and police abuse. In the community. And that's, for me, what's so important about Los Angeles as this unique backdrop for understanding a development of a subgenre of hip hop. It's an important backdrop for understanding the Watts Rebellion. It's an important backdrop for understanding Black power in LA. It's also what, of course, underlies the 1992 LA riots. And... I find that it is the root of this unusually dark and cynical subgenre of hip hop that emerges in the late 1980s. So for me, you have to understand something like the relationship between these ideas of LA as being this very special, unique place for black Americans and at the same time the these extreme forms of racial violence, especially in the form of police violence. That so these two things are happening simultaneously and that that is the backdrop for something like gangster rap.
0: And just for listeners who aren't familiar, what was the battering ram?
3: So the battering ram is initially this decommissioned military vehicle It was used on the war front in Vietnam, used by the US military, and then Los Angeles commissions these things for the 1984 Olympics. They're initially commissioned by Los Angeles because of the potential risk for terrorism during the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, Daryl Gates, in cooperation with the mayor, with Mayor Tom Bradley, decide to use these on the streets of LA in order to help the SWAT team in their drug house raids, and their rock house raids. So initially, these things are just, they look like tanks. They're these armored vehicles. And then when the LAPD decides to use them for drug house raids, they put this long steel 14-foot battering ram on the end of it which is the way to sort of break down these rock houses with precision. It's basically this way to turn communities into war zones. And this is first introduced on the streets of L.A. for the drug wars in 1985. And it's used a few times in 1985. Then the things go into retirement, and then Daryl Gates brings them back out in 1988. So it's a weapon of war on the streets of L.A.
1: And a kind of weaponization of the police force that has continued today, obviously. We don't have to think back too long to remember the tanks and other heavily armored vehicles that were rolling through the streets of Ferguson. I want to shift a little bit along these lines to ask you about gangster rap, especially in Los Angeles around the mid to late 1980s as a kind of literary realism, a Mm -hmm. form of reportage and just capturing of what was actually going on. There's ways in which I've thought about Gangster Rep from this time as being, you know, similar to kind of the work that Richard Wright was doing earlier in the 20th century, you know, in terms of, like, showing what was actually happening in communities, and then, obviously, the other part of this is to talk about the media backlash against that.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating to me, on the one hand, that these artists and hip hop as a genre generally is there's this litmus test that hip hop artists have to be authentic that you know there's this idea that hip hop is speaking to the truths of the street i think that's a legacy of gangster rap specifically la rap specifically but what's interesting to me about that i think you kind of put your finger on it that i mean literary realism is still art so there's still I mean, I think for these guys, the idea of reality or labeling themselves as reality rappers or gangster rappers was kind of this like neat trick where they're raising the stakes of what they're doing. So they're responding to what's going on in New York where artists like Run DMC are branding themselves as street rappers. So what's going on in hip hop is, you know, artists increasingly are associating themselves with being hard. So the more hard your rap is, you know, the more important it is, the more valid it is and i think what they're doing is raising the stakes of that by labeling themselves as reality rappers i mean what is harder than sort of being like a news correspondent and you know being on the street and being mm-hmm. able to report from a first person perspective and i think it's important to realize that this is the era of the 24-hour news cycle and this is also the era of i talk about this in the book but of Dennis Hopper's colors so where you are having these fictional accounts of real crises that are happening in la And so these guys are saying, look, like we're going to ramp it up and we're going to say that we have the knowledge and the experience and we live it so we can speak on it from this place of truth. But it's also a way that they're provoking the public. It's their art. And so there's it's a mix of their own experiences, but they're also, you know, their stuff is It's outlandish. It's exaggerated. It's humorous. It's all of these things in the way that, you know, what Eddie Murphy is doing or what Richard Pryor is doing. I mean, it's it's intended to be shocking. And I think by labeling themselves reality rappers, it's a way to double down on that idea.
1: At the same time though, Felicia, there's this very interesting kind of, I guess we could say it like a coda or a refrain that happens in your retelling of this history in which the music itself suddenly becomes blamed for or mm-hmm. a locus in which we can place quote unquote violence. Mm-hmm. There's a very odd way in which the mainstream media that you cite, you know, music criticism and all of that kind of says, Oh, well, it's this music is so violent instead mm-hmm. of attending to like the realities of everyday violence that the speakers, the rappers themselves are giving representation to. I mean, can you talk about that as a kind of like, There's just seems this perpetual media tendency to blame Black populations, and in this case, Black artists, for the violence that is taking place in their communities because of outside forces like the police?
3: Yeah. I mean, what I can say is it seems to me that these guys are fully aware of that. I'll give you an example. So Ice Cube you know, he goes on this media blitz to talk about how MTV bans the Straight Outta Compton video. And the Straight Outta Compton video that they film is basically a depiction of a gang suite. And part of the reason why there's such shock around this video is because of the violence, the depictions of violence, right? And there is violence in the lyrics. There's violence in the lyrics of Straight Outta Compton, this NWA song. But in the video itself, the only people who are violent are the police. The rappers, they're talking about guns, but ultimately, the depiction of guns on screen, they're using their fingers. So it's like kids, like kids pretending like they're tough. But it's really the cops that have the weapons and the cops that ultimately have them face down on the hood of a cop car in the end of the video, but it gets banned. And Ice Cube, he's calling out the media for that. He's basically saying like, look, like you're Criticizing us for being violent, but you are, you're blinded to the crisis that we're dealing with. So they're speaking to this in real time, you know, and it's part of their, not just, you know, in terms of them speaking to the problem, but also their way of getting attention to the music. It's complicated because I think that they're very much aware of what they're doing. I mean, they're using plastic guns in photo shoots. So they're very much aware of how the public is perceiving them in this caricatured way. And to a certain extent, they play into that, especially eazy because they know it gets them attention. And I think what is valuable, what's currency for them is that attention. I mean, so it's tough, right? Because they're playing into these caricatures. They understand that the press is going to depict them as these violent kids, these violent Black kids coming from these ghetto landscapes, these gangland landscapes. But ultimately, they also need that platform to speak on the crisis that's happening there. So it's tough and you can understand why they have been depicted in a lot of the literature as these sort of modern day minstrels, because it's Mm. easier to depict them that way. You know, it's easier to kind of not parse out what they're trying to do and what they're fully aware of and how sophisticated they are in understanding the different kinds of forces that they have to navigate.
2: So maybe for people who are not familiar, can you give us a sense of... Just to step back a little bit, a sense of how rap takes hold in Southern California, because it's I think when you think about the beginning of rap, at least for me, I think about, you know, New York. Mm -hmm. I think about Bronx, Queens. And as you point out in the book, the way that rap becomes popular in California is actually quite a bit different than the way that it spreads in New York. It looks different, the events are different. And I thought that was actually a really fascinating part of your story. And then I also want to check in about sort of the main players that arise within the beginning of this genre kind of taking hold.
3: The origin story of New York typically revolves around this idea of the four elements. So the four elements in the hip hop history canon is DJing, mcing breakdancing, and graffiti. So I think a lot of the narratives about hip-hop's evolution have revolved around that framework. And so what was very interesting to me was that it's very different in LA. That framework doesn't exist. So you don't have things like graffiti and breakdancing as integral to the way in which Black youth music, hip-hop develops in LA. There are... New York imported versions of hip hop culture in LA and some of the clubs like the radio, for instance, I talk a little bit about that club lingerie is another one where you have kind of these like Bronx showcases. So you have, you know, promoters and artists who are coming from New York, coming to LA and then setting up something that they feel is sort of true to the hip hop aesthetic in LA. And I think part of the reason why hip-hop scholars have seen LA hip-hop as basically being this offshoot of New York is in part because of those people, of those entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and what they're doing. This is, oh, okay, so we're seeing in LA this very similar thing with like graffiti backdrops and people breakdancing and these very, very diverse audiences. I think it's it actually masks what's really going on because in LA, you have something that is it revolves more around the DJ, the mobile DJ in particular, and it is it's virtually exclusively black, which is really what makes it unique from what happens in New York. I mean, it is the mobile DJ scene that I spent so much time examining in Los Angeles is a largely black scene and very much intertwined with gang culture in early 1980s LA. I mean, that alone makes it just a completely different origin story. In terms of, you know, what these artists are navigating, the audiences that they're performing for, and how those sounds develop. I mean, this is a sound that is specifically designed for something that looks a lot more like a Jamaican sound system. I mean, these huge, huge speakers, a party thrown at the Los Angeles Coliseum with thousands of kids. I mean, it's a different sound that develops. It's more bass heavy. It's more about like a physical experience. So... I think a lot about the sound and the bass in LA hip hop, that it has to do with, you know, how people are consuming it in
2: stadiums and in cars, ultimately. So to explain what a mobile DJ is, so these mm-hmm. mobile DJs, and Dr. Dre turns out to be one of them, I had no idea, they would go from barbecue to barbecue, event to event, and have these mobile parties.
3: yeah. I mean, there is a version of this that's happened in New York, which is also a legacy of a Jamaican tradition. So the sound system tradition in Jamaica. But in LA, the mobile DJs, it's a little bit more like club DJs in the sense that the DJs, I mean, a guy like Egyptian Lover becomes a headliner. I mean, he is creating beats in the moment. He is the draw for these thousands of kids. The Uncle Jam's Army, these big DJ crews, they would invite artists like Run DMC or Mm -hmm. like soul artists, like Midnight Star. But those artists would be the opening acts because really the kids were there to see the DJs. And that to me does seem different from what's happening in New York because it's really the DJs that are the kings of the scene. Well into the late 1980s, long after the MC sort of becomes the center of the scene in New York, the DJ is still very much like the reigning, important force in Los Angeles.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Felicia Anjaja Tour author of to live and defy in la we'll return to that conversation in just a moment but first we have this week's book recommendation
1: we
2: have harry dodge back on the line with us again today harry dodge is an artist and he's the author of a new book called my meteorite or without the random there can be no new thing harry dodge is here to recommend a book for us. Harry, what book are you going to recommend?
4: I'm going to recommend a great short novel called Crudo, uh, which is mm-hmm. C-R-U-D-O by Olivia Lang. Yeah, tell us more. Well, I read it, I guess, last summer. It was about a year old when I read it, so not old, not new. And it totally blew me away. I love this this book. It's a really strange little short book, in which the character of the author is really pulled apart, in which the character of the author is um, sort of problematized. And Mm. that's definitely of interest to me. She sort of oscillates between being herself, it seems, and we're sort of situated in some sort of short trip that the actual author is taking. But then she kind of lightly pretending that she's Kathy Acker too for the Mm. whole book, which is so... so unlikely but she's alive kathy Acker as alive in 2017 and uh i don't know it it sort of quietly breaks so many conventions i was totally enthralled i was surprised and pleased with her handling of um, time and um she had a really interesting relationship to uh sort of the speech act A lot of things were sort of wispy and palavering. And then they would sort of break into these kind of weird, bold, elegant sentences. It was amazing. And um, I just loved it. And and the craziest thing was that she alternates between the first person and the third person. So she's Mm -hmm. in the, like, I did this, I did that, I did that. She did this, she did that. And suddenly the author is talking about herself in the third person, but as Kathy Acker. So it's very weird. Interesting. But it's only sort of lightly weird. And I just loved that it was so weird and also just not weird all at the same time. And I felt like she got away with it.
2: <laughs> um, that sounds really interesting. Um, really good. Okay, one quick question. I think from our past conversation, from this conversation, I can see that you approach books in a very intellectual way, very heady way. How did this book make you feel? I want to hear about the affective part of reading this book.
4: <laughs> that's a great question i think it made me feel kind of um bubbly kind of excited <laughs> Cool. <laughs> but I, the thing is my experiencing intellectual interest is is absolutely a feeling
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
4: Um it's it's a full body feeling a kind of joyful feeling a kind of bubbly and feverish feeling so if i'm excited and something's making me think and something is surprising me those are all those are all kinds of uh, things I could um, call joyful, I guess.
2: Okay, and this book made you feel that?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Will you tell us the title and the author again?
4: Yeah, the book that I'm recommending is Crudo, C-R-U-D-O. It's a short novel by Olivia Lang.
2: Thank you so much, Harry. That's a great recommendation. Thank you. We've been talking to Harry Dodge. His new book is called My Meteorite.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Felicia and Jaja Vietor, author of To Live and Defy in L.A. Since the book does center around N.W.A., maybe we could just talk a little bit about their connection to... Gang culture and how specifically in Los Angeles, this kind of like emergence of, you know, a huge network of gangs, how that tied into lots of people who also became rappers and producers. What's the coexistence there?
3: The members of NWA, they weren't officially part of gangs and they admit to this. I mean, this is so, you know, and, and this kind of ties into the... um we discussed reality rap and the idea that, you know, if you're a reality rapper, you're speaking to real experiences. And so even when they were rapping about gang life and gang culture, you know, they would talk about the fact that they were reflecting on what their peers were experiencing. And Ice Cube talks a lot about how, you know, you grow up in a place like South Central or like Compton and you're, you know, gangs are just woven into the fabric of your life. So these are, you you know, the artists in NWA and other LA rap artists, they're like all the kids in these neighborhoods where they're struggling to navigate a crisis. So you have kids who are growing up in these parts of LA that, and even in spite of their own best efforts or best efforts by their parents or their grandparents or community members to stay separate from gang culture, they're still immersed in it. They're immersed in it in school, they're immersed in it at the dances, at the skating rinks. And so- if you're at all interested in socializing, if you attend school, you encounter gangs and you have to figure out where you fit in. So most kids in L.A., you know, including the members of N.W.A. and guys like Todd e. T, for instance, who I talk about, they opted not to be active in gangs, but they're still compelled to either pledge loyalty to whatever gang set ruled the neighborhood or whatever gang set was at their school, you know, or they, you know, they choose to affiliate for safety, for respect, for social status as a response to peer pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens when you associate with gangs, however loosely, you know, whether you want to, or whether you have to, or whether it's some sort of combination of the two is that you're by association, you're part of that perceived crisis. You're targeted as part of that crisis by the police, you know, by your own community, by the press. And so this is a tough place for Black youth, for these kids who become artists to be in because they are not earning sympathy for their position as, you know, part of this gang culture from anyone except their own peers. And it's from that perspective that they create this music. I mean, they're creating music for these kids they're creating music for their peers many of whom are part of gangs and who are gang affiliates so and what's what's crazy about that from my perspective is that you know ultimately that music that they are creating for themselves and for their peers and for this culture is what crosses over you know it's that music that they're they're really creating for themselves and for a local audience and kind of an insular audience that that is ultimately what crosses over and what smothers pop music. So, you know, it's surprising from my perspective as a historian, it's, it's, it's even shocking.
0: I mean, and I, I, I'm curious how the, the kind of narrative of that particular, you know, genre of realism differs from like the more hustler or drug dealer, you know, New York counterpart, which is still about living amidst poverty and, and having to get by by whatever means necessary, but does anything stick out to you that's more specific to the kind of gangster narrative or gangster rap narrative than the hip hop realism that that's found in New York? Yeah, I.
3: It's a great question. I think the main difference. So if you look at sort of early Boogie Down Productions or even early Public Enemy, like the song "My Uzi Weighs a Ton" comes to mind. Like in New York, these rappers in the '80s. At the same time that NWA is kind of figuring out its sound, you do hear lyrics about guns. You hear lyrics about drug use, crack, the cops. You you hear that in the lyrics in New York. So there is a hard sound coming out of New York that is addressing many of these same kinds of things. The main difference you know, lyrically and aesthetically that I noticed, and I think that hip hop fans at the time noticed and why somebody like Jay-Z was so kind of like shocked by what was coming out of LA was that the way in which LA rappers as early as Toddy T are addressing those very same things is not from a position of these are the problems, this is how we address them. It's not like with Public Enemy, it's not a specifically kind of politically active point of view it's not coming from a position of uplift. Like there's not this hopefulness or this sort of activist bent in their music that, it, that the, these guys like Toddy T and then eventually NWA are doing something a little different where they're, it's, they're almost celebrating what's going on or at least like not trying to solve the crisis, not trying to address it head on, but just reflecting on it and sometimes making light of it. In ways that earns them criticism, so there there is a a difference in terms of the way in which New York is addressing these things, but from a from a position, many of them um, from a position of sort of activism. Whereas LA, it's like the news correspondent. It's like the idea that you're a reality rapper and that you're doing something that is simply you know addressing what's going on on the on the front. Like you're not trying to judge it. You're right. just,
0: and I guess that's why there was also, there were also kind of leveled um, accusations of black exploitation, or that it it, right. almost, it reminds me of someone more like Iceberg Slim, or you know people yeah. who are uh, just telling their story straight up and, and don't have that kind of larger perspective.
3: Right, and it's not coincidental that Ice T yeah. is very much influenced by Iceberg Slim. I think you know those are great connections to make because you know it's that same sort of reflection on something to the point where some people think that you're exploiting it and celebrating it um, to the detriment of your people. So,
1: yeah. Felicia, and I I think that we would be kind of remiss in Mm -hmm. not at least addressing a little bit, like, I think one of the objects that you consider that everyone will be probably immediately familiar with, but which also binds together a lot of the things that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. in this interview, which is straight out of Compton, the album. So from what is that? 1988 is uh, straight out of Compton, and this is—it seems to me—the the album that really puts gangster rap on the national, if not kind of global, map. It's also the thing that seems to define both the press's negative um, assessment of gangster rap as something that sows more division, that does all the things that we were kind of talking about before. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit just about that album as a phenomenon and also as kind of a cultural turning point?
3: That album, it's interesting to me because the way in which people typically talk about that album is "Fuck the Police was not a single, but it becomes sort of, you know, the lore around NWA and the lore around Straight Outta Compton typically centers on that track. And the thing that I wanted to investigate was how do they get to the point where the FBI is paying attention to them? And, you know, I found that 1988 was just the perfect year for their, for them to put out that album because all the lurid news about gangs, about drive-by shootings, about the LAPD, it was all kind of coming to a head in 1988. So Mm. You know, there's a lot of texture in the story around 1988 because there's a lot happening in L.A. I mean, there's a woman who's killed in Westwood, um, uh, you know, that sort of very affluent area of L.A. in a essentially sort of she gets caught in the middle of a a shooting between two gang members in Mm -hmm. Westwood. And that happens in early 1988. And then a couple months later in April of 1988, Dennis Hopper releases his film Colors, which is, of course, this um, dramatic take on the um, the battle between the LAPD and uh, LA gangs, and so that's all happening. And at the same time, and I think very much connected to those events, the LAPD and Daryl Gates resurrects the battering ram, starts employing these gang raids, and it's big news. Suddenly, you know, all these crises that the national news has kind of somehow missed in the early 1980s suddenly everyone's paying attention to LA it, it is such a perfect time for NWA to release this album i mean they've already mm. had some success with Eazy-E's career boys in the hood right um, this record is not is doing pretty well you know JJ Fad had you know quite a, a successful run but i don't think that Eazy-E especially thought that straight out of Compton as an album would have the kind of traction that it gets but 1988 becomes sort of the perfect year for an album like Straight Outta to Compton to come out because they're able to promote it as the true narrative of what's happening. That every you know everyone is so curious about. There's all this rubbernecking going on in the press around Los Angeles, around its gang crisis, around the LAPD, around this woman Karen Toshima and her death in Westwood. Folks are fascinated by Dennis Hopper's depiction of this in Colors. It's a huge blockbuster hit and they enter right into that conversation in the most powerful, explosive way. I think that backdrop is important for understanding why anyone is even paying attention to this album Street out of Compton, why anyone mm. would pay attention to this group NWA coming out of LA, why they would get, for instance, a feature on Yo! MTV Raps in, in late 1988, which is well before Fuck the Police becomes a controversy. Right. So they're starting to get some attention And they're able to use and leverage that attention with this album because everyone is so fascinated by what's going on in L.A. And that is well before, you know, police get their hands on police all over the country, get their hands on the lyrics to fuck the police. And it becomes this outrage. So, you know, you don't get the hype around fuck the police and the sort of outrage and the FBI letter without, all of those other things that happened in 19, 1988 that set up NWA to release this album and have folks pay attention because they're like, what is going on in LA? And what can these guys tell us? And how can we get our fix <laughs> yeah. in this way with music that sounds really good? I mean, it's a super musically entertaining album, too. You know, it's not just the lyrics, but it's also funky. Like, it's, it's, it's entertaining and, and enjoyable to listen to. It's not just dark and dystopian. Like it's actually really funky and it bangs.
1: <laughs> well, which, is, which is something that really distinguishes West coast and Los Angeles rap from the kind of East coast, New York rap, right? Is that it? it has this kind of, party vibe to it, you know, I- including the samples, the kind of, I- this would be, I guess, maybe a little bit later with Dr. Dre, but the sampling, Parliament Funkadelic, you know, all mm-hmm. those kind of bands, right? It has this jumpier, more, I believe you, you use the term up-tempo, right? Um, that that marks it as, as distinct and perhaps, like, gives it more circulation.
3: Yeah, Dr. Dre is getting... Um, some practice in, in producing in this album. And he does a lot of the production in Straight Outta Compton. So what you hear in The Chronic, for instance, in 1992, what makes that album such a monster hit with Dre's production, you're getting a taste of that on Straight Outta Compton. So already Dre is, he's infusing his his love of funk music and of doo-wop and old soul and, you know, and s- some electro influences are in there to make for an album that when I say that it bangs, what I'm, you know, it's it's really sort of the physical way that it bangs out of speakers in a car,
0: mm. and that
3: that is that is truly important for this genre. Um, the way that it develops in the 1980s in Street of Compton is not just full of these lyrics like with "fuck the police" that can become sort of a rallying cry, but also it's just it it sounds good coming out of you know your car, and it, that I think that's part of the reason Dre's production and the bass heavy you know the bass heavy sounds the aesthetic of this album is is very important for why it becomes as popular as it does not just on the west coast but eventually in the south it becomes a huge hit even before it sort of catches on in new york
2: felicia what's your personal relationship with um hip hop and rap like how how do you remember these ones how do you listen to it now what's who are your favorites sure i <laughs> so
3: um i'm very born and raised so I'm not from LA and people always wonder, you know, why would I write about LA being from Bay, being from the Bay and, and not having lived in LA. But I, you know, I grew up listening to Bay rap, especially mob rap, uh, guides like, uh, Selly Sell and Mac Mall. So mm-hmm. there's an aesthetic in Bay area rap that, you know, the, the sort of the, the bass heavy sound, the funk, the doo-wop influence sound. I think that primed me for loving LA rap. And I think that I'm that I'm not unique that way. A, a lot of us who grew up listening to Bay rap, I think also just naturally loved LA rap. And I was a young teen in the 90s. So when LA rap is really becoming this commercial crossover power, and I, it made sense to me, you know, being from the Bay, you know, and, and loving the Bay sound, and then sort of, you know, being in love with the LA sound, it made sense to me that that LA would Um, that LA rap artists would cross over and would sort of elevate hip hop commercially. That made sense to me. It it didn't make sense to me though, as like when I sort of became a scholar and I was reading a lot about hip hop, reading what had been written about hip hop, it just did not make sense to me why LA hadn't been mentioned or LA hadn't been sort of credited for transforming the genre from this New York based art with an uncertain future into this, into this sort of national phenomenon. So from the bay i think you just have a natural affinity for la rap or at least i did and um, and then i was also a dj for many years so you know i had the experience of playing parties and understanding what bay audiences wanted to hear i also you know played outside of the bay in places like austin and, and even in like billings montana and it was just incredible to me like how much those crowds also loved bay rap and la rap so there seemed to be this really interesting connection between the two yeah, I mean, right now, I it, it's hard for me to keep up with a lot of the the new artists. I do see though really interesting connections to the stuff that that I studied with the the music of guys like Schoolboy Q, and mm-hmm. of course YG, and Roddy Rich, and of course Kendrick Lamar, um, Compton. And- Yeah. Compton Native, right. And, and Nipsey Hussle. I mean, I don't know if you saw the Grammys, but it was just fascinating to me to see that tribute to Nipsey Hussle uh, on the Grammy stage and, you know, having um, YG come out all flamed up in red and having Meek Mill come out in blue as a tribute to Nipsey Hussle's connection to the Crips. And so you have like these representations of LA's biggest gangs, like on the Grammy stage. So, you know, I'm paying attention and I'm, you know, it, it's always very interesting to me to see that this is still such an incredible force. Um, and that some of those same themes that you see in the, the '90s in the early 1990s are very much still a part of the music and the way we experience hip hop. I didn't really get at my personal <laughs> experience very much, but I hope I
1: sort of, um, you know, touched on it.
2: No, that's okay.
1: You end the book talking about Kendrick Lamar. And mm-hmm. and kind of the the legacy of this gangster rap era on hip hop and and rap more generally in the present. Yeah. Um, so can you just talk a little bit, very briefly, about the afterlives of gangster rap as you see them in the present?
3: Afterlives. I mean, I so I I do end by talking about Kendrick Lamar's performance in 2016, which of course is such a heavy year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, I I finished the manuscript that year, and of course that's the end of Obama's second term, right? This is this is like it's this moment that that the
1: seeming end of everything.
3: Yeah, like hope it, like hope is running dry.
1: Yeah,
3: there's of course this is of course the time of you know. All these high-profile police killings, Michael Brown and Eric Garner okay. and Tamir Rice and Freddie Gray, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also the moment, as I talk about in the, in the, the conclusion, it's also the moment when the Black, Black Lives Matter movement is really growing in strength. And it's simultaneously when white nationalism is coming out of the shadows and force, right? And it's eerie to me how much L.A. in the 1980s parallels this moment because the Obama era is this sort of this this moment in which you have all this post-racial messaging, right? Where this real hope about progress that is obscuring to a certain degree, to a big degree, these very acute problems in American society, including the fact that racial bigotry continues to pervade the culture. And of course, bigotry in police departments is continuing to put black lives at risk. Right. And it's eerie to me how similar LA in the 1980s looks to Mm. that moment. So, I think about how, you know, in in that context, it's not surprising to me how the themes that dominate in gangster rap in the late 1980s, this challenge to institutions of white supremacy, this sort of militant challenge to institutions of white supremacy, but also this celebration of things like consumer culture and, you know, and, and wealth, which is very eighties, right. Right. Um, That that remains in the fabric of contemporary rap. So like rap, it's not surprising to me. And I think it's actually very important that rap is still this vital platform for black voices and it's still a significant cultural force. And I think that that's like, what I was trying to communicate in the conclusion when I was talking about Kendrick Lamar on the Grammy stage in 2016 and what he does, the way he like shocks his audience. And that's important you know, it's important that he's got that platform and it's important that st- he can still, you know, leave them slackjawed. So there are definitely parallels and connections that I still see and, I, and I'm, um, I'm glad I see them.
2: Well, that seems yeah. um, like a good place for us to end, uh, the ways in which the past connects to the present. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Felicia, for talking to us. Oh gosh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Such an honor. So we have been speaking with Felicia Anjeha Vietor. Her new book is called To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangster Rap Changed America. Thank you so much, Felicia. Thank you all. I really appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.